Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Glad to see you here, and hopefully you're recovering <laughs> from the holidays and all the wonderful food and family and friends, and, and that's always a great celebration for us to have, for sure. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, as you and I consider 2015, I don't know what kind of emotions or thoughts run through your mind, and if you're half glass full people like me, you can't wait to see what God has. If you tend to be glass half empty people, you're like, oh, I hope it ain't like last year. You know, or, or I hope that the bad things don't happen. And um, I, I thought it was interesting as I studied this, uh, actually one verse is really primarily what we're going to look at, um, is that the hardest thing that you're going to have to do this next year, I'm going to tell you what it is this morning. So we're getting that right out of the way. Isn't that great? The hardest thing you and I are going to have to do this next year is to manage your heart. It's hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life, and it's ongoing. And so we're going to look at what that is, because if we can get that right, uh, it's going to make a whole lot of other things right. And so if you turn to Proverbs 4, verse 23, Proverbs 4, verse 23 in your Bibles, and I think it's on the screen as well, and uh, we're going to read this together, and so if you would join with me, you ready? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We've got to do it once more, now we're warmed up, okay? Here we go. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. That's a great verse. That's a great passage. It's not about managing your time. It's not about managing your schedule. It's not about managing your activities. It's about managing your heart. That's a tall order. Paul said to a young pastor named Timothy, he said, Timothy, I want you to do something. Pay close attention to yourself. That's good counsel. I think Paul was getting at the same thing. Timothy, pay attention to your heart. Pay close attention to yourself. And I think to evaluate where our hearts hearts are at requires us to do something which we don't often do, and it would be very helpful for us as we consider managing our heart. I remember reading some time ago that those who are getting trained to fly helicopters, they have one particular thing they do often, is they'll get into a certain machine, and what they'll do is they get the machine spinning. They get this helicopter dynamic spinning, and they they want the uh, instructors, they want those who fly these helicopters to be able to learn to do something. That in the midst of spinning, there's something they need to do. And that's not to look at all the spinning. There's one thing they want them to focus on. That's the gauges. Because the gauges don't lie. And so they know if these helicopter pilots can learn, even when all these things are spinning and their helicopter's getting out of control, if they can lock on these gauges, they can know what to do. They can know how to correct things. I submit to you that when your life and my life are like a helicopter and they're spinning out of control with activities and all kinds of business and all kinds of decisions to make, we need to look at the gauges. Why? Because the gauges don't lie. There's four primary gauges that we need to look at when we talk about managing our heart. The first one's a spiritual gauge. That shouldn't surprise us. It's the most important gauge. And it's at this point you and I need to be honest as we look spiritually at our lives, where do you stand in relation to God? Where do I stand in relation to God? At the heart level, at the deepest level, we need to look at this gauge. 
There's another gauge you need to look at, the physical gauge. We're told in Corinthians that you and I are temples. We are to invest in what God gave us for the long haul. Many die too soon because they ignore this gauge. They ignore God's warnings. You and I need to pay attention to this gauge. If we don't, fatigue will set in. And when fatigue sets in physically, we're not surprised it has a ripple effect on other parts of our life. There's a third gauge, the emotional gauge. And the longer you ignore this one, you're in for crisis. And if it's not addressed, you'll become calloused. You'll become hard. You'll have a shrunken heart. You'll become very susceptible to deception if you don't pay attention to this gauge. And there's a fourth one, a relational gauge. Incredibly significant. Think about it. When you boil all of life down, it's about relationships, isn't it? And if your gauge is on empty here, if your relationships are not deepening with your friendships, with your families, you're in trouble. And you know what happens when these, these gauges, when they become out of balance, the helicopter pilots learn that these little warning indicators go on. It's kind of giving them a heads up. You better pay attention to this gauge and correct it. If not, you're in for a disaster. And God would say to you and I, pay attention to these gauges because if an indicator light pops up, you're in trouble if you don't address it. This morning is our chance to address those gauges. Where are you in light of those four gauges? If you're courageous enough, I would encourage you right now in your sermon outline to write down which of those four gauges right now as you look at are starting to get towards the warning light. Out of balance. Out of whack. Because they will affect our heart. Which brings us back to four, chapter 4, verse 23. It's a great verse in Proverbs. He starts out, Solomon says, with a command. Watch over. It's the idea of managing. It refers to closely observing, protecting, preserving. Preserving what? Your heart. The question that would be coming, it's a good one, what is our heart? What, what is he talking about? We're talking about your inner being, your inner world. It's spiritual in nature. It's the center of where choices, values can be determined. It's a place where worship takes place. It's a place where confession is to be conducted. It's the center to which every component of self owes its proper functioning. I like the Dictionary of Theology, Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, when it talks about the heart, just defines it this way, and I think far better than I could. It's the center or focus of man's inner personal life. The heart is the source or the spring of motives. It's the seat of passions. It's the center of thought processes. It's the spring of the conscience. That's why a new heart is needed, because all of those things have been affected by sin. Solomon says, watch over your heart. Now, if you want to do a further study of the life of Solomon, Solomon had good reason to say that because Solomon didn't watch over his heart. And his life was a process of erosion of a man who didn't manage his heart. And boy, he did not finish well, to say the least. And so he can say, watch over your heart, because he knows how important it is. To not manage our hearts is to allow the rest of our lives to suffer. To not manage our hearts is to allow all them gauges to get dangerously close to great disaster. 
I don't know if you realize when our hearts aren't managed, we become so susceptible to the reality that we're one decision away from wrecking our lives. Realize that? You and I are one decision away from creating great disaster in our life. And it will happen, and I promise you it will happen if you do not manage your heart. Is that important? That's why we're commanded. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know something. What? Know my heart. Because that's really what's going on. That's really where it's at. Because if you and I have a heart that's right, we can have a life that's right. The psalmist says, Know my heart, know my affections, know my values, know my thoughts. Know who I really am. And there's a point that we need to understand. Romans 5.5 5 points it out. It says, addressing that when we've been made right with God, something significant happened. You might not even know that. We're told that the love of God has been poured out. Where? In our hearts. In other words, there's now a divine infusion of God's love into the equation of our life. A divine infusion of God's love now into the deepest parts of who we are God's love is now in the equation of our lives when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That happened. But a heart with no love is a shrunken heart. It's an empty heart. We would use the expression that person's heartless. And what we're really saying is there's no love in the heart. And God's saying outside of Christ, the reality is you're heartless. You need a new heart. You need a fusion of God's love into your heart. And the reason our hearts shrivel, the reason we find... Our life with little compassion as we took God and His love out of the equation of our lives. That's why someone can lay on bed at night with honest introspection and say, I don't like how I treated my spouse today. That's why someone can lay on their bed with honest introspection and say, I don't feel good about how I reacted to my children. I don't feel good about the trail of shallow relationships in my life. I don't like the fact that I can look at a hungry person on the street and just shrug my shoulders. I don't like the fact that I look at a fallen world unsaved and spiraling out of control, and all I can do is switch channels. I don't like that. That's a shrunken heart. That's a person who's not managing their heart. And if we don't watch our heart, we'll miss the remedy as well. It's that important. And today what I'm saying is the reason there's shallow relationships the reason there's broken lives is not because of lack of conflict management. It's not because of lack of resources. It's because of a shrunken heart and poor heart management. And so there's a command, watch over your heart. There's also an intense priority given. Notice it. With all diligence. Why? Because there's a lot at stake. A lot at stake. When we manage our hearts, they become a wellspring in which you and others can drink. It's a beautiful picture. Our hearts need to be protected from influences outside itself that might jeopardize its integrity and shrink its compassion. And think of all the influences that seek to shape our inner world around us. It's so easy to become desensitized by evil, by the lack of concern of people. But God calls here from Proverbs 4 is to manage our inner world in such a way that it will create an influence on an outer world, not the other way around. If we neglect our hearts, we allow our outer world, the outer sphere, to shape us. But if we manage our hearts properly, we are able to affect and impact the outer world around us. 
And if we are honest, there's fleshly entanglements, there's tentacles of our deep-seated opinions and prejudices and anger and bitterness that wrap itself around our heart and our heart begins to shrink under the weight of all those things. We need to watch over our hearts and we need to do it with all diligence. We need to be intentional in it. Why? Why must we manage our hearts? Why must we pay attention to them and watch over them? Jeremiah 17.9 hit it right in the head. He says our hearts are deceitful above all things. It's an ongoing battle. Sin has taken its toll on our affections. Sin has taken its toll on our passions. Sin has taken its toll on our thought processes. It's had an incredible impact on our inner world. It's deceitful. We need to pay attention to it lest we be deceived. 1 Samuel 16.7 also reinforces why we need to manage our hearts. It's because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at our hearts. We need to manage our hearts because that's where God looks. God looks beyond it. We forget that. We're very conscious of other people looking at us, but we feel safe enough because they don't see what's inside, they just see the behavior. And the reality is, if we are honest, we can alter our behavior in certain situations so that we look pretty good. But God looks through the facade of all that and says, I'm looking at your heart. In light of that, you and I need to watch over our hearts and make sure we keep it right before God. And He responds to the heart. God cares very little for our outward show. And because the heart's above all who we are, who we choose to be, God's always sensitive to even the slightest move of a heart towards Him. Hebrews says He honestly rewards those who seek Him. He blesses those whose heart will be moved towards Him. But we choose often to ignore that, don't we? We choose not to manage our heart. We choose to neglect it. Well, there's some passages that give us a little glimpse of some of the ramifications of not doing that. Matthew 12, 34 is one of them. If you want to know how your heart's doing, Matthew 12, 34 is going to give you an indicator. It's going to help you understand something. Verse 34 of Matthew 12, Jesus speaking to the religious crowd says, You brood of vipers. <laughs> there's a way to make friends, huh? How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. You want to know how your heart's doing? What's coming out of your mouth? Are you belittling people? All of a sudden your speech has become quite careless? What comes out of your mouth? Because what comes out of your mouth is a little flag about what's going on inside. If you're blessing people, if you're encouraging people, if your speech is building people up, if it's blessing people, it's an indication in your heart. So it's twofold. What's coming out of your mouth? Jesus says, a reflection of what's in your heart. Matthew 15, 8, since we're there. Matthew. Jesus points out something else about our heart. You hypocrites. He's still making friends. <laughs> Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Well, that made me stop and think about Sunday morning worship. Isn't it easy to come in here and just like we're turning the radio on? We're just going to sing the songs. And not only that, we get a great worship band. This is, this is a kicking group up here. And we're like, oh man, they're good. We're going to sing along. 
We're going to honor Him with our lips, but I wonder, matter of fact, God wonders where our hearts. If we don't engage our hearts, we just went through the motions. And that's a sad thing in God's eyes. You and I need to engage our hearts. That's what worship's all about. And so it's an indictment in their life, whether it was their speech or their worship, that there was nothing of the love of God flowing from their lives. That's the indictment Jesus levies against them. So what about you? Is the love of God flowing in and from your life? Do you sit back and look at your worship? Is your heart engaged? As you look at your speech to reflect a heart that's right with God? A heart that seeks to love people? I wonder. I uh, have a little book. It's about, it's, it's about a dad who writes daughter, uh, letters to his daughter as she grows up, and especially as she's leaving the house. And with Angela there, I've read a, some excerpt from it. And, uh, and one of the little things he has there is about swearing, and I appreciated what he, he wrote about it. He said, swearing is a prideful life trying to carry an aura of authority. Wow. Makes you clean up your language. And he's, he's right, isn't he? It's a prideful life trying to carry an aura of authority. And, and when, when someone's caught up in that type of speech, it's a reflection of the heart. And this author's uh, obviously assumption is that there's pride there. Why do we manage our hearts? Because it's deceitful and it's the place God looks at. We need to manage and watch over our heart. The beautiful thing about the Bible is we step back and look at it in totality is it's first and foremost a love letter. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God's Word is meant to engage our heart. It does appeal to the intellect, no doubt about it. It does appeal to the honest searcher. It appeals to our hearts. First and foremost, it's meant to grip our hearts. If not, we need a divine filling. If our heart's shrinking, if we're not sensitive and it's not overflowing to other people, it's because we choose not to manage. We choose not to keep divine love in the equation of our lives. That's why if you're going to get the most out of your Bible reading, is to look at it at the lens of the totality of the message. God loves you. God has a big heart. It overflowed to this world. That's the big message. It's a message that God wants His love to overflow into our lives and through our lives. Proverbs 4 then, it builds on the command to watch over and it builds on the intense priority with all diligence to a reason stated. For from it flows the springs of life. It's important. You see, our lives are to be broader than our tasks and our to-do list. You see, from our hearts come what really matters, such as acceptance, purpose, passion, need for companionship. In other words, there's real needs of the heart. And God says, I can meet them. I can meet them. But watch over your heart and do it with all diligence because from it flows springs of life. And if we tap into His divine love and if our, our lives are infused with the love of God, there will be a fresh flowing element to our life. There will be a vitality to our life. Uh, what would you rather drink from? A brook that has a, a free-flowing amount of clear water or a stagnant, scum-covered pond? What would you rather drink from? More importantly, what's your heart like? What's your life like? If other people look at your life, what are you offering them? What's coming out of your heart? 
It's important. There's a lot at stake. More than all else to be watched over, while all else to be managed, protected. It's imperative that we keep our hearts sensitive because from it, within it, comes divine energy for life. When we manage our hearts, when we keep God's love in the equation of our lives, it allows us to walk in that love, to share that love, and our life takes on a new vitality. I want, I want us to see a picture. There's two hearts on display. Matter of fact, I think God wants us to see the picture. Luke 7. I think God wants us to see a picture, a contrast of a heart that's managed well or a heart that's sensitive and a heart that's not. And what a picture it is. Notice the contrast here. I'm reading Luke 7, verse 36 to 50. I want you to put yourself at this party. Jesus is invited to a party, to a, a, a dinner. I want you to put yourself on the table. Okay? Of course there's chicken, mashed potatoes, and corn, right? Because that's what the spiritual meal is. And so you're at the table, and I want you to observe what's going to happen here. Okay? Here we go. Now one of the Pharisees requesting him to dine with him, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house... She brought an alabaster vial of perfume, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him. She's a sinner, idea being more like she's a prostitute. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house, your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were at the, reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So you're at the table and you probably would think the same thing I could. These two people will be more different. He's esteemed, Simon. She's looked down upon. He's trafficked in the church. She's trafficked in the streets. He's hosting the gathering. She's crashing it. And who would you choose as to be the one closest to God's heart if you were at the table? Simon's the man of the cloth. He's a student of theology. Anyone would pick him. Anyone but Jesus. Jesus knew both their hearts. Simon had an angry heart. He had a shriveled heart. His thought is, who let this hooker in my house? This is a formal dinner. Look at her groveling at Jesus' feet. How could Jesus put up with her is his question. And then Jesus, this is kind of neat, Jesus answers Simon's thoughts. Simon hasn't verbalized this, he just thought it. Jesus answers his thoughts. You've got to be careful, Jesus knows your thoughts. 
Simon invited Jesus over, but he treats him like a trophy in a case. No courtesy. He didn't greet him by washing his feet or oil for his head. Simon's heart is not engaged. The woman's is, though. We're not told her name. We're just told her reputation. She's a sinner. Her heart responds, though, with a meaningful, extravagant way. If you and I were at the table, you'd think Simon of all people would show such love to Jesus. But he doesn't because his heart has shrunken. It's stingy. It's resistant. You'd think the woman would avoid Jesus. She's a woman. She's the town hussy. But she can't resist Jesus. How do we explain the difference between the two? Training? Education? Money? Nope, Simon's got her on all three of those. Big time. One discovery she made. One thing that gripped her and filled her life like nothing else, which was absent from Simon's, is God's love. She came thirsty, and God's love filled her. Forgiveness cleansed her. Simon, on the other hand, believed he didn't need grace. He analyzed it. He prorated it. He never asked for it. We certainly don't see that. You see, Simon did not have God's love in the equation of his heart and his life. Self-interest was at the center of his life. He had a shriveled heart. And a shriveled heart cannot experience intimacy with God. If God's love's not regularly infused into our hearts, we become shriveled and experience the opposite of intimacy, which is aloneness. Aloneness is a result when we don't manage our hearts. Our hearts begin to shrink. We become deceived. And when we become deceived, we become alone. Some would say, theologically, we are never alone. God's presence is an entitlement bought by our redemptive transaction with Him, and I concede the point, but that is just the point. It's not that we don't relate to God at certain points. We're pleased to belong to God. At certain points, we're pleased to serve Him. Maybe glad to obey Him and live for Him. But doesn't it seem to long for God often is not in our spiritual repertoire? We've learned to be busy for God without needing Him so deeply that we can't get enough of Him. Pretty easy to get that way, isn't it? It's pretty easy to look at your life and say, I'm busy for God, I'm doing things for God, but do I long for Him? I mean, do I am at the place where I understand that nothing in life will matter if I'm not connected with God in a deepening way? In other words, we're utterly dependent upon Him. Have you come to that place? We must if we're to manage our heart well. We must. You see, not getting enough of God is what belonging to Him is all about. I mean, to uncover and listen afresh to His call in our hearts should be the focused pursuit of our lives. Because we can be positionally connected to God and His resources, but functionally alone in the ongoing experience of life. Although in reality He's always there, if we don't manage our hearts, we can't connect with Him. Intimacy is thrown aside. And from our lives does not flow springs of living water. And Proverbs 4.23 is telling you and I, when our hearts are not watched over, when there's not an infusion of God's love, life becomes dry and affects all of life. 
How do we keep our hearts centered on Christ? How do you and I at the very core of our lives continue to grow in the love of God when there's so many around us who not only are anti-God but hate God? How do we manage our hearts in such a way that they expand and not shrink? How do you as a teenager keep your heart soft towards God when you're surrounded in a school by those who really don't give a rip about God right now in their life? How do we keep our hearts soft towards God? Well, there's some counsel for us to consider. The first thing I just want you to maybe remind yourself of is because some of you have forgotten the real world has taken its toll. It beats us down. And because of that, your heart may have shrunk. And maybe this morning you're sitting here thinking, you know what, in 2014, my heart has slipped. I don't care like I used to care. I don't long for God like I used to. I've become irritable, self-centered. And you're tired of it, which I hope you are. You see it in your attitude towards people. Violence does not disturb you. Broken lives get a shrug. There's anger at being inconvenienced. Your own sin has been justified. And you're tired of it. And I have some counsel from you, for you. Number one, keep drinking from the well. God has an inexhaustible supply of love. Matter of fact, so great is God's love and mercy that we're told in Lamentations that they're new every single morning. Think about that. God's love is so fresh and there's such an inexhaustible supply that every single day you wake up, it's new. There's more and more and more. If you want the divine infusion in your life, drink from the well and keep drinking from the well. When we and I don't come to Jesus, who has an inexhaustible supply of love, for regular refills, our hearts become dry. And we can only love because He first loved us. And like the woman in Luke 7, come into His presence, extravagantly expressing your love. And drink deeply from His unending supply of grace and forgiveness. And you know what? When we do that, something happens to our hearts. They begin to expand. They begin to push things out. We have more like the heart like Jesus. How many here can confess you're love-starved? You're tired of your life being ravaged and tired of the gauges on empty. Number one, ask God to fill you with His love. It starts at salvation. Have you formally done that? Have you asked the love of Christ to come into your life? Those whose hearts are growing embrace the truth that they're well-loved and they keep drinking from that love. Keep drinking from the well. Number two is a very practical one. Keep in places where divine refills are most likely to occur. Keep in places where divine refills are most likely to occur. This one's so practical, we do it every day probably. If you're driving your car and the needle's low, on empty, what are you looking for? You're not looking for Walmart. You're looking for a gas station. Why? Because that's a place most likely where you're going to get your gas tank filled. And I would submit to you, if your spiritual gauge is on empty, go where divine refills are most likely to occur. That's not the bar. That's not the computer, more than likely. There's places divine refills occur, like church. I hope in 2015 you renew your commitment personally, for your family to come where divine refills are most likely to incur, this is one such place. A community group that will help expand your heart in so many ways. I appreciated Tom Nelson's message last week. Incredible message. If you didn't get to hear it, 
there's a, a CD out there, and if you want Tom live, I think there's DVD too. Okay, and uh, but he's right. Community groups, I think we have nine of them. It's a great place for divine refills to occur. High school ministry quench. High school students, the place where divine refills are most likely to occur. Children's ministry, women's, men's studies, and then after this, Sunday school. There are places our ministry offers where you can have divine refills. But the greatest place I'd submit is when you sit at the Savior's feet, personally. Go to places where divine refills are most likely to occur. I wonder how many are aware that the world is draining you. I wonder how many are wise enough to stay in places where divine refills are most likely to occur. Parents, I want to just say something really quick to you. Need I remind you, your child lives in a world that is taking its toll on them. In a lot of ways, it's a sick world. And I plead with you to provide a place for your child, regular places where God's compassion is most likely to be found. They depend on you. And these little hearts ache for God's love too. I implore you, place your children where divine refills are most likely to occur. Encourage them in that direction. Encourage them on missions trips. Encourage them to places where they could be built up and they could see the love of Jesus. And a third piece of counsel to consider, keep around people who regularly demonstrate an overflow of God's love. In other words, involve yourself with dispensers of God's love. Look for those whose compassion inspires you. I'll date myself, but there's a movie. I never thought I'd use Ghostbusters as a sermon illustration. But there's a movie years ago, Ghostbusters. If you remember the premise of the story, which if you don't, no big deal. But these, these guys would, would put a hose on people and suck out the ghosts, okay? There are people around you who would put a hose on your heart and suck out the joy. And suck out the love. Don't make it a habit of hanging around those people. There are people we need to reach for Christ, no doubt about it. But you and I need people in our lives who will demonstrate an overflow of God's love. Who will help us. And teenagers, again, hear me and hear this, learn this early in life. Stay around people who will help you, not hurt your attempts to keep your hearts toward God. Connect with compassionate people, contagious people. This morning, you and I stand at a fork in the road as we face 2015. A fork in the road, I, as I went through this message, I realized that I know all too well. It was not too long ago. All at once, I faced a series of ministry pressures, betrayal, in some cases, like never before. And it seems like they were all coming at once. I had probably not wisely taken on several different ministry roles at once. My dad was had dementia and I saw him fading over the process of time. Had some issues with my family. And I noticed something through that. I didn't notice it right away. I sure wish I would have. Some heart issues that I'd ignored. They've begun to surface. And I realize somewhere in there and still to this very moment how much I need divine refills. And that I stood there, and as you do today, with two paths. One path says business as usual. Keep doing 
what you're doing. It's a well-lit path. Matter of fact, most people take it. It's clearly laid out. But what if you knew it would lead to a heartless place? What if you knew your heart would shrink if you stay on that path? But there is another path. It's a narrower path and oftentimes a little more difficult. But the path is not business as usual. This path is called trust me. It seems uninviting. There are costs associated with this path because it requires humility, requires confession, requires life alterations. Yet what if you knew it led to a bigger heart? What if you knew it led to a softer heart? A heart that more connected to Jesus. Which would you choose? No, maybe the question should be phrased, which one will you choose? We all stand there right now as we face 2015 to manage our heart. And it requires living on that narrow path, the path that leads to a bigger heart, the path where divine refills regularly occur. Which path will you choose? There's a lot at stake in managing our heart. Which path will you choose this day? Let's pray. Lord, I realize on the surface, sometimes even saying these things, they sound easy. But it seems the more I think about it, the more I reflect on it, the more I read in Your Word, watching over my heart and managing my heart takes courage. It takes going against the flow. It takes living a life that's different from those around me and maybe around us as well. Lord, i got to believe that I'm surrounded this morning by brothers and sisters who don't want shallow hearts either. Who are tired of shrunken lives in empty gauges. but want their lives full of Your love, who want the divine infusion of Your life and the, Your love and the equation of their life, who want, God, their, their tanks and their gauges to be full and their lives vibrant. I believe that. So God, what I'm praying this morning is that what each of us would pay careful, careful attention to the condition of our hearts this morning and in these coming hours and days. We would be honest before You. And God, we would consider the counsel this morning to address what we find. And Lord, for some here, it might just be outright confession and brokenness over sinful patterns, sinful choices. For others, it might be stepping out of the shadows of aloneness and moving towards you and moving towards others. For others, it might be just stepping away from self-centered interests, engaging in the lives of others, allowing your love to splash over into their lives. I don't know what that step or steps will be. I know you know. And I pray each person here would hear what you say.
It's all said and done, Lord. We want to love You well. We want to love others well. And we know that can only be done if our hearts are right. And if our hearts have an infusion of Your love. So please do that, I pray, God. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.